Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918 War Podcast. In this episode we'll be continuing our reading of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to chapter 11 now. If you're enjoying the series, make sure you click subscribe so that you don't miss out on future chapters. And don't forget that I sprinkle in other World War I history podcasts as additional episodes along the way. So without further ado, let's get on with chapter 11. Everything you hold very vile is at stake. Du hast uns starke Berührung mit der See, wenn wir dem für uns möglichen weltumfangenen Geistgenau von Gewinn. Chapter 11 Stocktaking, Fortifying, Nebulous Fragments Hudson, myself, his servant and my servant all crushed into that house that night. What a relief it was. We all slept in our greatcoats on the floor, which was as hard as most floors are, and dirtier than the generality. But being out of the water and able to stretch oneself at full length made up for all deficiencies. Hudson and I both slept in the perforated room, the servants in the larger chamber, near the fire bucket. I got up just before dawn, as usual, and taking advantage of the grey light, stole about the village and around the house, sizing up the locality and seeing how my position stood with regard to the various machine-gun emplacements. The dawn breaking, I had to skunk back into the house again, as it was imperative for us to keep the effect of deserted house in village. We had to lurk inside all day, or if we went out, creep about with enormous caution and go off down a slight slope at the back until we got to the edge of the wood, which we knew must be invisible to the enemy. I spent this day making a thorough investigation of the house, creeping about all its component parts and thinking about how we could best utilise its little advantages. Hudson and I crept out to examine the village by stealth, and I went on with plots for fortifying the castle, and for being able to make ourselves as snug as we could in this frail shell of a cottage. I found a hole in the floorboards of the attic and pulled myself up into it thereby. This attic, as I've said before, had all one end blown away, but the two sloping thatched sides remained. I cut a hole in one of these with my pocket knife and thus obtained a view of the German trenches without committing the error of looking out through the blown-out end, which would have clearly shown an observer that the house was occupied. Looking out through the slit I had made, I obtained a panoramic view, more or less, of the German trenches and our own. The view, in short, was this. One saw the backs of our own trenches, and then the no-man's-land space of ground, and beyond that again, the front of the German trenches. This is best explained by the sketch match, which I give on the opposite page. I saw exactly how the house stood with regard to the position, and also noticed that it had two dangerous sides, i.e. two sides which faced the Germans, as our position formed two sides of a triangle. I then proceeded to explore the house. In the walls I found a great many bullets which had stuck between the bricks of the solitary chimney or embedded themselves in the woodwork of the door or supporting posts at the corners. Among the straw in the attic I found a typical selection of pathetic little trifles, two pairs of very tiny clogs evidently belonging to some child of about four or five years old, one or two old and battered hats 
and a quantity of spinning material and instruments. I have the small clogs at my home now, the only souvenir I have of that house outside St Yvonne, which I have since learnt is no more, the Germans having reduced it to a powdered-up mound of brick dust and charred straw. Outside and lying all around were a miscellaneous collection of goods, half a sewing machine, a gaudy, cheap metal clock, a sort of mangle with strange wooden blades, which I subsequently cut off to make shelves with, and a host of other dirty, rain-soaked odds and ends. Having concluded my examination, I crept out back to the wood and took a look at it all from there. Yes, I thought to myself, it's all very nice, but by gad we'll have to look out that they don't see us and get to think that we're in this village, or they'll give us a warm time. It had gone very much against my thought-out views on trench warfare coming to this house at all, for I had learnt by the experience of others that the best maxim to remember was, don't live in a house. The reason is not far to seek. There is something very attractive to artillery about houses, they can range on them well, and they afford a more definite target than an open trench. Besides, if you can spot a house that contains, say, half a dozen to a dozen people, and just plot a Johnson right amidships, it generally means exit house and people, which I suppose is a desirable object to be attained, according to 20th century manners. However, we had decided to live in the house, but as I crept back from the wood, I determined to take a few elementary and common sense precautions. Hudson had returned when I got back, and together we discussed the house, the position, and everything we could think of in connection with the business as we sat on the floor and had our midday meal of bully beef and biscuits, rounded up by tea and plum and apple jam spread, neat from the tin on odd corners of broken biscuits. We thoroughly talked over the question of possible fortifications and precautions. I said, What we really want is an emergency exit somewhere where we can stand a little chance if they start to shell us. He agreed, and we both decided to pile up all the odd bricks which were lying outside at the back of the house against the perforated wall, and then sleep there in a little easier state of mind. We contented ourselves with this little precaution to begin with, but later on, as we lived in that house, we thought of larger and better ideas, and launched out into all sorts of elaborate schemes, as I will show when the time comes. Anyway, for the first couple of sessions spent in that house in St Yvonne, we were content with merely making ourselves bulletproof. The whole day had to be spent with great caution indoors, any visit elsewhere had to be conducted with still greater caution, as the one great thing to be remembered was, don't let them see we're in the village. So we had long days just lying around in the dirty old straw and accumulated dirt of the cottage floor. We both sat and talked and read a bit, sometimes slept, and through the opening beneath the sack across the back door, we watched the evenings creep on, and finally came the night, when we stole out like vampires and went about our trench work. It was during these long, sad days that my mind suddenly turned on making sketches. This period of my trench life marked the start of Fragments from France, though it was not to the end of February that a complete and presentable effort, suitable for publication in a paper, emerged. It was nothing new to me to draw, as for a very long time before the war I had drawn hundreds of sketches, and had spent a great amount of time reading and learning about all kinds of drawing and painting. I have always had an enormous interest in art, 
My room at home will prove that to anyone. Stacks of bygone efforts of mine will also bear testimony to this. Yet it was not until January 1915 that I had sufficiently resigned myself to my fate in the war to let my mind turn to my only and most treasured hobby. In this cottage at St. Yvonne, the craving came back to me. I didn't fight against it and began by making a few pencil scribbles with a joke attached and pinned them up in our cracked shell of a room. Jokes at the expense of our miserable surroundings they were, and these were the first fragments. Several men in the local platoon collared these spasms, and soon after I came across them, mutty and battered, in various dugouts nearby. After these few sketches, which were done on rough bits of paper, which I found lying about, I started to operate on the walls. With some bits of charcoal, I made a mess on all the four floors on our back room. There was a large circular gash made by a spent bullet, I fancy, on one of the walls, and by making it appear though this mark was the centre point of a large explosion, I gave an apparent velocity to the figure of a German, which I drew above. These daubs of mine provoked mirth to those who lived with me, and others who occasionally paid us visits. I persisted, and then the next masterpiece was the figure of a soldier, afterwards private blobs of fragments, sitting up in a tree, staring straight in front of him into the future whilst a party of corpulent Bosch are stalking towards him through the long grass and barbed wire. He knows there's something not quite nice going on, but doesn't like to look down. This was called the listening post, and the sensation described was so familiar to most that this again was apparently a success. So what with scribbling, reading and sleeping, not to mention time occupied in consuming plum and apple jam, bully and other delicacies which a grateful country had ordained as the proper food for soldiers, we managed to pull through our days. Two doses of the trenches were done like this, and then came the third time up, when a sudden burst of enthusiasm and an increasing nervousness as to the safety of ourselves and our house caused us to launch out into really trying to fortify the place. The cause of this decision to do something to our abode was, I think, attributable to the fact that for about a fortnight the Germans had taken to treating us to a couple of dozen explosions each morning, the sort of thing one doesn't like just before breakfast. But if you've got to have it, the thing obviously to do is to try and defend yourself. So the next time up, we started. That brings us to the end of chapter 11. Hope you've enjoyed this reading from 1914-1918war.com. Please like, subscribe, leave a comment, all the good stuff that helps this podcast get seen by more people. Thank you very much. See you next episode. Bye.